Awesome. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Awesome. It is gorgeous out. Uh, well, in case you're new, we have been going through a series uh, over the church uh, called Healthy Church. And uh, the last four weeks, we went over the identity of the church. Who is the church? Um, we talked about that the church wasn't man's idea. Man didn't create it, but rather God did. Christ created his church. He said, this is my church. Um, I will build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We see all that, So that Christ is the one that, that built it. He's the one that sustains it. He's also the one that identifies it. We saw that Christ identified his church. He called his church his bride, his people, his flock, even his branches, that he's the vine. And so we see that Christ identifies his church. Um, and we see that the church isn't a building, right? It's not a company. It's not a um, a, a, a place where you can, uh, I don't know, uh, a fitness club, uh, but rather it's a people. Uh, the church is a people that have been changed by the gospel, that are centered around God's word, that what is proclaimed isn't isn't man's opinion. It's not tradition or namely experience, but what is held high is, is Christ's words. Um, for all those sermons uh, in the past are all on our website, and so if you ever want to listen, all those are there. But we're transitioning, so what we're talking about now is not who the church is, but how the church is called to live. What practically should occupy the church's mind, the church's time? What should the church be devoting itself to? Uh, and so we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about the expression of the church. What are markers um, that identify how the church should be living practically in the world? And so the first thing that we're going to be talking about, we're going to spend our time today, is that the church is called to, and one of the ways it's called to express itself is through making disciples. Uh, and so really the big idea that everything else is centered around today is that the church is expressed through sharing the gospel with all people uh, to see disciples made of all nations. The church is expressed through sharing the gospel with all people so we might see disciples made of the nations. So... Discipleship is, should, it should be what occupies the church's mind, the church's heart, the church's time. And we see this uh, because Jesus, after his resurrection from the grave, goes and right before he's about to ascend, the last things that he says to his disciples are in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, talks about discipleship. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You notice in this, Jesus doesn't say, well, here's a nice idea. Here's an opinion that you might consider. He calls us to something. It's a command. It's something that he says, this is, if you follow me, this is what will define you, is the call to go and to make disciples. But what does it mean to make disciples? How do we practically go about this call that God has given us to make disciples of all nations proclaiming the gospel? Well, before we can answer that question, we need to know what does it actually mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to, to follow Jesus? Um, so what it means to be a disciple is it means that um, our whole life is given. It means that we're a follower of Jesus now, there's not a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple, right? In, in Acts 11, uh, verse 26, it says, In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Right? There's a false notion that goes around that says that I can believe in Jesus, but yet refuse to follow him with my life. What it means to be a, a, a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, is that 
all of my life is submitted. I can't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I just want forgiveness from you, but I'm going to live my life as I please. Thank you very much. To, to believe that is to pervert the gospel, to misunderstand what faith is. When we come to Jesus, we come not simply for forgiveness from sins, but for reconciliation with our creator. What is the cause of brokenness in our life is that we are separated from God himself. And when we want to use God, but yet forget our relationship with God, we lose everything. There's nothing that we, we can gain. You cannot have forgiveness of sins and yet not want God himself. And when we come to Christ, we get forgiveness from God, but we get reconcil- reconciliation with him that we might live a life that is now submitted underneath his lordship and his reign as King Jesus. It means that we no longer are the ones that lead our life, but instead we find that Christ leads our life, that he is Lord, that he is king. Practically, we see this flushed out all throughout the gospel accounts when we see Jesus encounter his disciples. Um, we see in, in, uh, in the gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, He's talking to James and John, to his cousins. He says, it says, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with a hired servant and went away to follow him. What it means to be a disciple is it means that we are willing to leave everything that we've known. It means that we are willing to leave our jobs, our business, our friends, our comfort, because Christ calls us. Now, they would have known that this was a a very um, prestigious position, being a follower of Christ. And when we understand what it means to be a disciple, then we will as well. We'll understand that what higher calling is there than to follow Jesus. And this is what caused them. You see, the cost of following Jesus was outweighed by the benefit. They saw what it meant to follow Christ, and everything else was counted as rubbish in comparison And it's only when we see Jesus as more beautiful, as more valuable than everything else that we'll actually be able to do that. You see, when you're begrudgingly trying to give up things, your heart's still there. It's only when your heart's allegiance is switched and you see Jesus as most beautiful, as glorious, that you'll be able to give all of those other things up because they're nothing in comparison to him. We see also in Matthew 4.19, talking to, uh, um, to Peter and his brother Andrew, Jesus turns and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? They were fishermen by trade. And he called them and he said, I'm going to take everything that you knew. I'm going to take your entire occupation and it's going to be entirely changed and reoriented around me. What it means to be a follower of Christ is it means that we lay all of our talent, all of our skills, all of our time at Jesus' feet. And we say, I'm yours. You lead me. Because to encounter Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to have our life entirely reoriented. It changes us. It changes sometimes what we do, and it for sure changes how we do it. Right? So there are going to be times and places where God's going to call you to work the same job at the same place, but God is not going to call you to do it in the same way when you follow him. He will change drastically the way that you encounter people, the way that you work, why you work. All of these things will be changed because of following Christ. And Christ doesn't try to bait people in. You don't see this, you know, please everyone come and believe. He, he, he up front tells people to count the cost. He lets them know, here's what's going on. We see this in Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me 
is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will save it. It's only when we know God's love. It's only when we then show our love in return. It's only when we trust his grace towards us that we'll then begin to follow him. I was listening to a, a sermon by Francis Chan. He gave an illustration that I thought really um, hit this well. He talked about uh, a simple game, Simon Says. Uh, I did VBS this last year, and so we played Simon Says with, uh, I played Simon Says with the kids. Um, and it's an awesome game because they're three or four year olds and they can still play it. So, um, you can play with like all ages, which is really nice. And, uh, and right, the whole idea of Simon Says is pretty simple, right? You know, you say something, if Simon says it, then they have to repeat it. If Simon doesn't say it, then well, if they do it, they're out. And so they have to pay attention to realizing, did Simon say this or did Trevor say this? And so, you know, when Simon says pat your head, you're supposed to pat your head. If Simon says rub your belly, you rub your belly. When Simon says jump up and down, go in circles until you're dizzy, you know, all kinds of fun games, right? You know, and, and children get the idea, right? Children get the idea that you do what you're supposed to do. If not, you're out. Um, but somehow, as Christians, we think that Jesus says is a lot different, right? We, we think that when Jesus says it, that we're supposed to get in a group and talk about it. When Jesus says it, we're supposed to think about it. When Jesus says it, we're supposed to, supposed to memorize it, and maybe if we're even really good, we can repeat it in Greek, right? But, but what we don't do is when Jesus says it, that we actually do it. We actually think that it, it means obedience. What it means to follow Jesus is it means to, to do what he calls us to do. It's not complicated, it's costly. Following Jesus doesn't require the most amazing IQ, but what it does require is that we give up our life. It means that it's going to cost us things that we, things that our heart in its sinful stage wants. Time, energy, relationships, priority. Christ calls us to these things. In John fourteen twenty five, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The way in which oftentimes we demonstrate our love for Jesus is through actually doing what he says. I don't know about you, but um, if I told my parents I love you, but yet I didn't do anything that they said, they would say, you don't love me. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't work out that way. And so the way that we demonstrate our love for Jesus is that we practically do what he calls us to do. And that starts first with a change in our heart. But there are often times where we don't feel like doing things that God calls us to do. There's often times where what he calls is hard. Going to a cross wasn't easy for Christ either. But he laid down his life out of love, knowing and trusting that what God had called him to do was better, was right. So we see that the call of a disciple is hard. Right? It's difficult. Not only though is there a call for the disciple, but there's also grace that enables the call. Right? There's, there's two things we see in the scriptures. We see law that calls us to things, and we see grace that enables us to meet these things. And we see in John 13, Jesus gives his disciples an example. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it means to know that Jesus serves us. Jesus has loved us first. He comes right before he's about to die and he washes his disciples' feet. 
even those that are going to betray him, even those that are going to leave them. And he tells them, I have done this as an example to you, that you might do what I have done. And what it means to be a disciple, to follow Christ, is it means to know that he has first served you, that he has first loved you, that every single one of us falls short. Because I'll tell you, I listen to that. I listen to the call and I think, man, that's, that's massive. Man, there are times where I fall short. And there are times where my heart doesn't, doesn't give Jesus what is rightfully his. Isn't as all in. And it, it reminds me of, uh, of a time in my life. Um, many of you have heard this story, but I was young and um, my family went out to Colorado. I went out to Colorado with my dad. And we wanted to go climb mountains. You know, my dad, my dad wanted to climb mountains. I was probably like five or six, and so I'm tagging along, and he's climbing up this steep mountain, and, uh, and he, it starts to get so bad that he has to start climbing on all fours. And he's like, he's like, all right, you're, you're going to stick here, Trevor. You're going to stay here, and then I'm going to go up, and I'm going to examine further. You know, I'm going to keep going up. But after a while, I couldn't see him anymore, and so I started to kind of climb up after him. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted to go where he was. I wanted to be there, but I wasn't able I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't able to go up. And so as I climbed, I started to fall back. And I started to slip. And all of a sudden, I find I'm slipping down this mountain, you know, like trying to grab onto anything. And finally, I grab onto this this twig right as there's a drop-off, you know. And I'm, like, screaming my head off. And my dad comes and rescues, you know, picks me up and captures me, holds me in his arms, letting me know that he has me. Man, that's so much what we need to hear as disciples of Christ, that there are times where where we're going to go and we're going to seek to follow after Christ, which we rightfully should. You see every single one of the disciples that even though they failed, they, they tried with all their might, right? Every single one of the beginning said, listen, I'm all in. You see the disciples that said, well, listen, I don't know. I'm not really sure. At the very front side, they weren't the ones that followed. The rich young ruler, he counted his wealth as more important. And Jesus didn't beg him to follow him. You see others that said, well, let me go bury the dead. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. But those that up front said, I am willing to follow you, even in, after they had claimed that, they were still failure, right? Peter denied Jesus. They turned from him. But it was God's grace that enabled them. It's God's grace that came and rescued them. And it's God's grace that allows us to follow Jesus. And this, this is what practically it means to be disciples. It means to know God's grace in our life and his call for us to continue to die to ourselves. It's his grace that enables us to even do that. Do you know that God has you that even when you fall, even when you're following him with all of your might and you slip up, God's grace is still there to catch you. God's grace is still there to push you forward even more as you continue to strive after him. So we've talked a little bit about what it means to be a disciple. It means to give up our whole lives in following Jesus, to be reoriented underneath his lordship, to know and be marked by his grace. How is it that we are then to go forth and make disciples? Right? That's, that's the call that he gives. Well, the first thing that we need to know when we talk about making disciples is look back at Matthew, 8, Matthew 28. Remember the words that Jesus says. He says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. And the, the first thing that we have to know when we think about the process of making disciples is we have to understand God's role in it. Because if we don't understand God's role within discipleship, then we're going to be imbalanced in it. The only reason that we can make disciples is because all authority has been given to King Jesus. Right? And this is what Paul talks about um, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. He talks about Apollos and, and Paul. And he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Do you hear what he's, he's talking here? There's several things, but the most important is he says that who is Paul? Who is Apollos? They're simply servants through whom God is doing the work. It is God's field, God's seed. He is the one that starts it and allows it to even spring forth. And he's the one that continues to give it nutrients and give it sustenance, allows it to bring forth. And this is so applicable in discipleship because what we have to remember is that God is the one that saves. God is the one that matures. Because when we falsely think that we are the ones that save and we are the ones that mature, then our lives will be fiddled with anxiety and we will seek to control and to manipulate people. And if we don't think that, and on the, on the other hand, though, it says that we are God's fellow workers, that we are called to play, right? He says that we're his fellow workers, that we're servants. And so God uses means, right? We don't step back and just sit on our rear, lay in bed and say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. I'm just going to ignore it. No, God works through means, and we are the means that he works through. God proclaims the gospel through us being the feet and us being the mouthpieces. God matures his people as we give our lives over to serve other people. This truth, should it should humble us because it tells us that, that listen, we aren't that important. We are not that important. But it also encourages us because it encourages us because it says that God is going to use you. Since it's not about you, since it's not up to you, God will use you. God will use us to save people if we will proclaim the gospel. God will use us to disciple others if we will simply obey and find our lives submitted to him. God will mature and save his people. He'll do so through us as we are submitted and open, as we are willing to be vessels used by him. So the process of making disciples begins with what's called evangelism, right? Evangelism is the first step in discipleship. Um, some people will see evangelism and discipleship as two different areas, um, but I think evangelism is the beginning part of discipleship. Now, notice in that previous in 1 Corinthians, there are two different kinds of people, right? He says, Paul sowed and Apollos watered, and so or, or Paul planted and Apollos watered. And so there are some that are really gifted for evangelism. Right, I know people that man like they get around people and they're very na- they very naturally very quickly are able to talk about the gospel with those that don't believe and it's very natural, and they're still called a discipleship. But you see that they are gifted for evangelism, right? And there are others that they're so called to evangelize, but they are gifted for discipleship. They are gifted just to pour and to encourage and to build up. Now all people are called to evangelize. All people are called to disciple. But there are certain giftings that we can't ignore that we can't neglect. So what does it look like, though, for us, you know, for whether you're gifted at evangelism or you're not? Every single person, every Christian is called to evangelize. What, is it, what does evangelism mean, and how do, we, how do we do it as the first part of discipleship? Well, evangelism, first, it, it means simply to proclaim the gospel, right? It means to proclaim the good news that Jesus has died for our sin, has been buried and rose again from the dead three days later. It's, here's what evangelism isn't. Right, evangelism isn't telling a, a, isn't just telling about your life. 
your life may have testimony and might be a witness, but it's telling how the gospel has impacted your life. It's telling about who Christ is in and through your life. It's not getting people to go to church. It's, it is demonstrating through your life and declaring with your mouth the reality of the gospel. So just a couple things about how that actually is done. Well, the first thing that we have to have in evangelism is the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as sharing the gospel if you don't have the Holy Spirit. And we see this in Acts uh, 1.8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Jesus is talking to his disciples here right as he's about to ascend. And they're asking, is the kingdom about to come? What are we supposed to do? And Jesus says, wait, you will receive the Holy Spirit. He will clothe you with power. And only when the Holy Spirit clothes you with power will you be able to be my witnesses. And we see the whole book of Acts marks it. If you read the book of Acts, what you see is basically the Holy Spirit going before people and and opening doors to lead people to come to know him. I mean, you see it in Acts 10. Peter goes and the Holy Spirit gives him this revelation and he sees as he goes, that the Holy Spirit has already gone before him and done this work in these Gentiles to help lead them to himself. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the power to deny ourselves, to become passionate about Christ. The Holy Spirit reminds us of who Jesus is that we might then faithfully share the gospel. So without the Holy Spirit, without submitting to the Holy Spirit's lead, evangelism oftentimes becomes fruitless. It becomes pointless. So are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Are you submitted underneath him that he might lead you and work in and through you? The the second thing that I've found personally is probably the most, has been the most fruitful thing in my own life for evangelism is that you have to share the gospel with yourself. Do you preach the gospel to yourself? Because if you only, if you preach the gospel to yourself, are you going to naturally be able to preach the gospel to other people? Have you felt that? I don't know about you, but I've, I've been confronted by people that have been done doing evangelism and they'll come up and it's very, um, confrontational. It's, uh, it's very direct. It's very pointed. I don't feel like they know me nor that they love me. And it, it's very, very simple. It's very clear, but it's not really relational. And part of it is because they don't know me. They don't care for me. Evangelism should be marked, should be marked by us knowing people and caring for them. And by us preaching the gospel to ourselves. So, just a couple areas in which the gospel informs all of our life, but a couple areas in which we should think through how the gospel informs us. The first one is conflict. The gospel informs how we deal with conflict, right? Because we learn that Christ was our, we were Christ's enemy. We hated him. We weren't friends of God before, but instead we were, we were at odds with him. But yet, how did Christ treat us? Christ wasn't pouty. He didn't have his passive-aggressive stance towards us, right? Christ also didn't have rage-filled fury towards us and fly off the handle. What did Christ do? Christ lovingly engaged with us. He took our, our evil and he took it upon himself. And instead, he showed grace and he showed forgiveness. So this informs how we deal with conflict. What it means is it means that we don't, we don't run away from conflict, Right? We don't run away from conflict, and we also don't blow up in the midst of it. That our identity is found in Christ, not in being right. And also, we have been marked by how God loves us. And so we can love other people enough to where we will say things that are hard. 
You see, when, when our identity is not found in Christ, then we're either going to run away from conflict or we're going to blow up in the midst of it. When our identity is found in Christ and his love for us, then we can love people enough to where we can say difficult things to them in love and where we can also not run away, where we can not blow up because we can have patience because remember how Christ was patient with us. And this is a, I mean, this is a, a difficult thing. It's easy to understand, but it's applying and preaching the gospel to yourself in these instances, in these moments. And as we do this, that's going to be what you naturally begin to share when you talk to other people about how to deal with conflict. As you talk to your coworkers, as you talk to your family, as you think through how you deal with conflict through the gospel, that's how you're going to begin sharing the gospel with your neighbors, with your family, as you've processed it. What about, take another one, contentment. So what the Bible teaches is that we are broken and we are sinful. We are odds with Jesus. We are so broken and so sinful that it took the Son of God coming and dying on a cross to save us. And what this means is it means that our problem isn't simply circumstantial, but our problem comes from the inside out. And what this practically means with contentment is it means that no matter what job you have, no matter what relationship you get, no matter how much money or entertainment that you give, you are still going to, to feel broken. That There are definitely times where your situations can be changed, but true contentment will never be found in changing your situations. Instead, you will find that a couple years from now or a couple months, you'll continue to want to change your situation. True contentment comes from abiding in Christ, through him rubbing off on you, through his peace and his grace and his kindness being imparted in you. At least for me, that's the thing that is most saturated in my heart in the moments where I think and I say, well, I need this, I need that. If I could just have that, then my life would finally be content. I would finally have peace. It's what I'm really longing for in a job or a relationship or in a, a toy is just a dull reflection of what really is in Christ. Christ is the one that's truly beautiful. Christ is the one that truly has satisfaction. Christ is the whole definition of what it means to have true wealth. When we preach the gospel to ourselves, it's what brings contentment in us. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Let's take another one, sexuality. All right? What does it mean for me to preach the gospel to myself with regards to sexuality? The gospel teaches that I am not my own, that when I have come to know Christ, he has purchased me, and Christ was faithful to me, right? Christ was pure, and he was faithful. He didn't cheat. Instead, he endured all the way to the cross, and so my body is no longer my own. Instead, I belong to another, to the one that loves me chiefly and, and first and foremost, and so that changes how I, I treat my body, because no longer can I use my body for my selfish, lustful indulgences. But instead, I entrust my body to Christ and I submit underneath his reign and his rule, knowing that he is good, trusting that, that he gave himself fully for me. And when I give myself fully for him, his plan and purpose will be for my good. Preach the gospel to yourself with your sexuality. Do you use your sexuality to benefit yourself? Or are you realizing that your body is a temple that the Holy Spirit dwells within? And he's called you not for impurity, but to purity. That you might honor him. We no longer live for ourselves, but we're in Christ. What about politics? How is it that we should preach the gospel to ourselves with politics? 
The gospel teaches that Jesus has become king, right? When Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead, he was declared king and Lord because that is what he's done and who he is. But what it means is it means that the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is here in our midst, but yet it's not fully here. It's not fully inaugurated. So what does it mean that we live as Christians underneath King Jesus, but yet awaiting his arrival? How does that help us to encounter the political systems of our day? Well, it means that we are people that are not of this world, but are in the world. It means that we are citizens of heaven, but yet we dwell here on earth. And so what that practically means is it means that our hope isn't in a political leader. It's not in a political system to come and save us. Because ultimately we believe that all authority is Jesus. And we trust that he is the one that is guiding and reigning and ruling in our individual lives and also our nation. That nothing happens except by his will. That brings peace into our lives. It takes the fanaticism away and allows us to engage with people that we disagree with, with love, with patience, with kindness. Remember how we're to deal with conflict. But it also means that we are in this world. It means that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it means that we are to engage, that we aren't to simply passively be indifferent to the politics and the policies that are being made around us. But instead, we are to seek to bring about change that is going to lead to human flourishing. We believe that God's word guides us and helps us to understand how people are to live and how people are to operate in this world. And so it means that we are to help and lovingly engage and bring about a society in which those are cherished, in which those are valued. Not that we primarily... Policy matters. We need to do that. But listen, how can we be voting for policy when we don't even know our neighbors? We don't know our neighbors. We're not engaging in loving conversation, but yet we're trying to force these things upon them. We at least have to know the people around us and love them first if we're trying to change and force a nation through policy. Policy does matter, and we have to take that into understanding and think through those things. But man, we have to know people, individually people, If we don't know and love the people around us, we can't try to force politics upon them. So the gospel informs how we deal with politics by by putting our hope in a place where it can't be tarnished by elections or by people that disagree with us, but also motivating us by love so that we're not indifferent and we refuse to be engaged, but by which we care in our city, in our state, in our national government. You see, when, we, when you begin to think through the gospel in these ways, in the very practical areas of your life, then sharing the gospel evangelistically becomes something very natural, not something that has to be forced or conjured up because you're already thinking through, and so every relationship has plenty of opportunities to share the gospel. Are you talking about politics? Are you talking or dealing with conflict? Are you dealing with sexuality? Any, any of these number of areas give an opportunity for you to share the gospel clearly truly and here's the thing it comes from the core of who you are when you're thinking through these things because you're first applying them to your life and so for me it has the ring of genuine authenticity because people really know and they're seeking to live this out in their life do we know and do we love people and are are we preaching the gospel to ourselves and then through our lives it will manifest itself into others another aspect is that um Evangelism has to be marked by deep prayer. Deep prayer produces love, boldness, and urgency. When I understand, when you understand that people are genuinely lost, 
there are people all around you that don't know Christ, that because they're at odds with God and they die, they will be in hell, separated. It is prayer before God that changes our hearts. And we are moved by love. We are moved by an urgency to see people come to know him. And this is exactly what moved Paul. He writes um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15, He says, for the love of Christ controls me because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul was consumed by love for others. And that started with a deep prayer before God. You see, what happens when we pray before God is that God rubs off on us. God begins to impress his own character, his own heart, his own desires upon us. And so if we're not praying for others to come to know Christ, then we're, not, we're going to lack the boldness to share Christ with them. We're, when we kneel before God, he gives us the strength to stand before others. Our humility before him gives us boldness before other people. And so as we pray, God will fill our hearts with boldness, with love, with an urgency for the gospel that we, not, we might not be marked by fear. Because practically, why is it we don't share the gospel? I mean, think about it. Like, all of us right now can probably think of, you know, several people that we know that we probably should be sharing the gospel with. A lot of times what practically hinders us is that we're afraid. We're afraid that they're going to think we're weird or that we're going to lose a relationship, right? We're, we're, we're f- afraid. And so what moves that fear out of us is God's love. Is God's presence. And so as we, we cease to care as much what people think and we care more for what God thinks, we will have the boldness and we'll, God will show up and give us the words and the wisdom. Remember, we are not the ones that save. God uses us to save. If we will simply be faithful to open our mouths, to communicate the gospel, God will work. God calls us not to be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's what has saved us. So who should you share the gospel with, right? should be everyone. I mean, it's a pretty easy question. We're called to share the gospel with everyone. What you see is that we are to spread the seed of the gospel. It's like a farmer going to sow seed in which he is a liberal, in which he scatters seed all over the place. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family. How, but how do you go about it, right, practically? How, how is it that we should actually go about sharing the gospel Start by asking questions. Do you know them? Do you actually know what they're struggling with? Where their heart's at? What they long for, their dreams? Start by actually asking questions. Because when you share the gospel with someone, it's a practical expression of love. And if you're not showing that you love them in any other way, then it feels like you're trying to just use them. It feels like you're trying to use them for a notch on your belt. And so practically know them, love them, care for them, And as those things happen, you'll find that there is a door that begins to open, a way in which you can begin to share the gospel. Practically do good works, right? Some of us, it's hard. You're like, listen, I don't have the words. I'm not very eloquent. I don't really know how to transition the conversation into it. Love them profoundly. (laughs) When When they do hard and difficult things to you, show up and be lavish in grace, right? When When there's a hardship, come and be abundant in your love and encouragement. Support them. You know, the way that the first century church did evangelism is that disciples would go 
to prisoners that they didn't even know. And they would love on them. They would stay around when people were sick and were dying, not afraid that they might contract it because they knew that their home was in heaven. And people were marked by that. How can you have that kind of love? How can you be there in the midst of that? And then they would share the gospel. Do you see what Christ has done for me? You know, while I was dying in my sin, Christ came and died and rescued me. The gospel informed their service. And because of their radical service, because of the way in which they loved other people, the gospel flowed forth naturally. Know and love people. This is the way in which evangelism springs and the gospel comes. So we talked about evangelism. And a lot of what I've said about evangelism is very practical and applicable in discipleship, right? Because they're like evangelism is the introduction, the part with discipleship. There are some people that are going to evangelize, but really for most of us, this should be a relationship that you're seeking to form. Building a relationship that then moves into discipleship where you're pouring your life into that person rather than just trying to see them pray a prayer and then good luck. Build a relationship, know them, seek to help them to know and to follow after Jesus. So what is discipleship? Uh, we have a book called Discipleship Essentials and uh, Greg Ogden, he says this, he says discipling is an intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love to grow toward maturity in Christ. Practically, I think Paul defines it just as good in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, having become so very dear to us. Paul later says, he says it like this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What it means to disciple someone is it means to help them to obey and to follow Jesus through pouring your life into them. Discipleship isn't simply a book that you go through. It's not a, 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 a stage-to-stage process. Although those can be helpful, discipleship is living life with one another intentionally pouring yourself into someone else that they might further obey and follow Jesus. And and this is something, this is why being together as a church, this is why being in life groups is so essential because part of the discipling process happens in community setting, right? Together we help one another follow Jesus by our examples, by our encouragements. But practically, we need people that are intentionally, whether older or mature, more mature in the faith, to be pouring into us. And we need to be pouring and teaching others that are younger in the faith. Do you have someone that is older, that is mature, that is pouring into your life, that is encouraging you to follow King Jesus? Do you have others in your life where you're seeking to pour and invest your life into? Jesus says that this is what should mark his church. Practically, this is what should consume our time. What would happen if you thought about your jobs and your family and your the, way, the place that you worked in this way? Who, God, would you have me disciple? Who would you have me to pour my life into? It would change everything. You would begin to see opportunities and to see places that you go out to eat as as opportunities and perhaps see someone come to know Christ and to pour into their life. Discipling is intentionally investing all of yourself to see someone come to know and be matured in Christ. So, I want to end just with a couple practical ways in which we can we can apply today. Um, first, perhaps you're here listening to this and you're saying, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm a Christian. You know, I, 
I prayed a prayer once, and maybe I thought Jesus is the Savior, but I never actually understood that it meant that I live a reoriented life underneath and submitted to Christ. I would urge you, and I would call you, follow Jesus. Do you see that he is more beautiful, more valuable than anything else in this life? He's more worthy. Everything else will let you down. Everything else will will disappoint you. Christ is the only one that will endure. I would urge you, follow him. Give up your life and trust in him to lead you and to guide you as Savior and Lord. Trust in him. For those of us that, that are Christians that say, man, I've, I've submitted my life, I believe that I'm following Christ. My challenge is, are you praying for those around you that don't know Christ? Because that is what we are practically called to be about. To, to, that's to consume our heart and our mind. So, you have a three by five card. I'd really encourage you, please grab grab that three by five card. And I want you, in the next as we as we come and as we begin worshiping, I want you to think about. I want you to think of at least three names, three names of people that you know don't know Christ. And I want you to commit just to pray for them. I promise if you are faithful to begin to pray for them, God will begin to use you in their life. God will give you the boldness to begin to share the gospel. And if you don't know three people that don't know Christ, then I would challenge you, get outside of your comfort zone and get to know three people that don't know Christ. Okay? Listen, like I'm a pastor and I'm surrounded by Christians all the time and I like have to intentionally get outside of this. Like I have to intentionally go play basketball and put myself in other situations where I don't know Christians. But I please, you need to be in places with people that don't know Jesus so that you might be a light, you might be a witness. We aren't called to be a holy huddle, right? We're called to go forth and to be lights in this dark world. And it, if you're saying, I don't know what it even looks like for me to, to disciple someone or even to be discipled. I don't think I've even been discipled. I really want to learn what it means to, to follow Jesus. As the church, we're called to help connect one another with discipleship relationships. And so if you're saying, man, I really want to learn what it looks like to be discipled, please, we have connection cards. Would you fill that out? We would love to connect you. We would love to get with you and, and, and to try to put you with someone that would intentionally pour their life into you, that might model that, that you might be someone that follows Jesus, that helps other people to follow Jesus. These are three very practical ways that we can not simply be hearers of God's word, but be doers of it and let the gospel inform us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives and for your calling. Lord, I'm constantly aware of the ways and the areas in which I fall short. The people in my life that I'm called to share the gospel with, the way in which I'm called to pour my life, and the calling and the cost of it is to follow you. And I thank you, God, for that call and for the cost, Lord, because you are worthy. You are worthy of giving it all away. God, but thank you for the grace and the times in which we fail, the time in which we we don't prioritize, we don't see your beauty and your value. God, I pray that your grace would lavish us, that we might want to more see you for who you are. And so, God, send us out, Lord. Please, there's a broken and desperate world that needs the hope of the gospel. Help us to be bearers of that good news in our workplace, in our family, and with our friends. Give us boldness. Help us to be a people marked by prayer. We do love you, and we continue to worship you this day. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.